This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, plastics and global warming, Zoe Carpenter of The Nation will report. Plus, how movement politics has changed over the last 50 years, Dick and Mickey Flax will comment. Also, it's the 50th anniversary of John and Yoko's bed-in for peace at the Amsterdam Hilton. They called it our protest against all the suffering and violence in the world. And they celebrated it in song. The newspaper said, hey, what you doing in bed? I said, we're only trying to get us some peace. We'll listen later in this hour. But first, Trump after the Mueller report, or at least after the Barr report on the Mueller report, Trump Watch starts right now. Well, on Sunday, uh, we learned that uh, a court from Attorney General William Barr that the special counsel Robert Mueller did not find evidence that Trump conspired with Russia in the election. Trump, of course, is triumphant. He claimed complete and total exoneration. But according to a new CNN poll out today, a majority, 56 percent, say the president has not been exonerated. Uh, for comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I need to talk about this CNN poll for a minute. We waited for, you know, over a year for uh, Mueller to release his report, thinking this was going to solve everything for us. It doesn't really solve very much for us, and it turns out... Trump's base uh, is delighted with the results. Trump's opponents don't agree with the results. Not much has changed at all at this point. How do you uh, explain this? Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of at a uh, 1859 moment, as it were. That's not a $18.59. That's America <laughs> divided to, you know, uh, almost as we were on the brink of civil war. Uh, yes. uh, and so the, the, the findings in in the Mueller report, uh, aren't really going to change uh, that kind of, uh, of polarization of, of opinion, because the polarization of opinion is in many ways rooted in the polarization of what people think are facts, and what the people who watch Fox News and listen to Rush Limbaugh think are facts are not what the rest of us think of as facts. And, and then that, that's, a, you know, that's not a bridge uh, that's easily uh, crossed between uh, between those two worlds. Well, let me just re- report on what CNN found. 50% of everybody says the president has not been exonerated of collusion. Only 43% agree with Trump that he has been exonerated. That's That's basically his base. Independents are pretty strong. 58% of independents say the president and his campaign were not exonerated uh, by the Mueller report. Uh, Trump, meanwhile, is plowing ahead. He feels he has new political power, political capital that he wants to spend, and he announced that he's going to spend this new political power on killing Obamacare. An intriguing choice, don't you think? Yeah, uh, that's uh, like shooting himself in the foot and missing and shooting himself in, in the uh, stomach, actually. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, a, it's a completely bizarre uh, thing to 
bring up. I mean, these are the GOP's worst moments. Uh, with nothing uh, in the way of a Republican plan to take its place, they, of course, have only had nine years <laughs> of opposing it to come up with a plan, and that, that, that may not be, you know, enough time for them. Um, uh, so no, nothing there, but, to you know, to advocate... Uh, Repealing all of it means repealing the uh, the pre, you know the uh, ban on uh, insurance companies uh, charging you more for uh, existing uh, preconditions, uh, which which affects tens of millions of Americans, way more Americans than are actually recipients of uh, actually people who get their insurance through the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, it means repealing the provision that. Uh, Young people can stay on their parents' uh, health insurance policy through age 25. It's it's an absurd thing. We, we, and we and as we the reports have indicated, both uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, and uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, were dead set against this. Said, "Don't do it." We got clobbered in the last election on this, uh, and uh, Trump uh, went ahead and did it nonetheless. Yeah, the. Um... The polls have been very clear on this for a, a long time. Sixty-two uh, percent of everybody says Trump has done a bad job of improving the health care system. Seventy-five percent of independents say he's done a bad job. Today, the Affordable Care Act is more popular than it has ever been since the day it became law. Uh, you have... Uh, criticized Trump for failing to come up with something better, but you remember what he said, quote, nobody knew that health care could be so complicated, close quote. Indeed, indeed. That was a surprise that was sprung on him and concealed <laughs> from the rest of the country, I, I should add. That we, none of us realized this was a complicated thing, and then, bam, there it is. And, and you know, what, part of this, what this reflects, I mean, is that uh, uh, famous line in, in Faulkner, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. Uh, once Trump gets a fixation, uh, it, apparently it doesn't go away, as witnessed uh, by the fact that he, he feels the need to get rid of everything that Obama passed. Yeah. And so notwithstanding that this battle has been fought and lost by the Republicans, he brings it up again. And in that sense, it's analogous to his ongoing war against John McCain, uh, mm -hmm. you know, who is not spared in death from continuing attacks by uh, by Trump, uh, so there's this kind of uh, area in his uh, in his brain where where past and present uh, come together, and he can't quite distinguish between the two. So, since the Republicans failed to kill Obamacare when they controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. Trump's new bright idea is to try to do it in the courts. There is this suit by state Republican state attorney generals filed in Texas uh, that uh, originally started out trying to challenge just parts of Obamacare, but now is a challenge to all of Obamacare. Uh, it's going to be appealed up through the uh, the federal courts, and it might just end up at the Supreme Court. In 2020, what else is going to be happening in 2020? Uh, let me think. Let me think. <laughs> It'll be the baseball season after the one that started today. Today, yes. Uh, and there's, I think there's an election. And, um, uh, you know, there's a Yiddish expression, you need this like a luchen cup, a hole in the head. <laughs> uh, that's what the Republicans need like a hole in the head, is to have this before the Supreme Court uh, in 2020 with uh, the Trump administration administration. 
calling for a complete repeal. Uh, you know, if that were, in fact, the case, I would feel a lot more confident about, I'm, you know, I'm modestly upbeat about Democratic prospects in 2020. It would, it, I would lose the word modestly if that were uh, before the courts uh, as we went into election time. Well, uh, now let's let's uh, go back to the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, who said that uh, said that the special counsel Robert Mueller could not come to a conclusion about obstruction of justice, and that left it to Barr to decide whether Trump was guilty of uh, or could be charged with obstruction of justice. And since Barr already said a year ago that the president could not be charged with obstruction of justice, there. Wasn't much doubt about how that would end up. Seems to me this is, and me and lots of other people, this is a huge failing of Robert Mueller, and I still can't understand it. The whole point of getting a special counsel was to have an independent investigation that would decide this question and not put it in, a, in the hands of political appointees loyal to the president. Surely Mueller knew what Barr would conclude on this question since he'd written that memo that became public a year ago. So instead of an independent investigation concluding about obstruction of justice, we have exactly the kind of political decision that the independent counsel's office was created to prevent. Why, why did this happen? That's hard to say. You know, if you asked um, uh, James Comey or, or even if you asked Jeff, Jeff Sessions, you know, did Trump... Uh, endeavor to, uh, uh, you know, su suppress the uh, uh, investigation. Uh, it would be hard, you know, they would we weasel out of this maybe, I mean, yeah. Sessions would, but, uh, you know, they were on the receiving ends, uh, basically, of attempts to obstruct justice. Uh, uh, Trump attacked uh, uh, Mueller and uh, the investigation uh, upwards of 200 times, which could be taken as evidence of of, of obstruction. So it's uh, it's it, it's a little uh, it's a little hard to fathom uh, what went on in uh, in in Mueller's mind on this. Uh, uh, you know, and and if you actually read uh, what what Barr wrote, one of his art, one of his lines was that well, since there was no attempt at collusion, uh, there couldn't really. Uh, there, there was no nothing that Trump was trying to obstruct. Of course, Trump didn't know that there would be uh, <laughs> no conclusion that there, there would be a conclusion that there was no collusion. And I, I'm not trying to speak in rhyme here, but I am. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's kind of like I was reminded of that great line in uh, uh, in in the novel uh, the, that's some catch that catch twenty two. <laughs> Not, uh, you know, not accused of collusion. There was nothing he could have been obstructing. Uh, all right. Uh, anyway, also we learned today, or maybe it was late yesterday, that the Mueller report is actually 300, a little more than 300 pages long, which suggests that the three and a half pages <laughs> we got from William Barr uh, might not really be conveying the whole story. You know, uh, it's about one percent, turns out, uh, lengthwise. Of uh, of the Mueller report, so uh, there is uh, much yet to be discovered. And among the things that to be discovered are uh, the 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 three hundred pages we are told contain descriptions of the case for charging Trump with obstruction of justice, as well as the case against charging him. And Barr 
himself writes that for each action, the report sets out evidence on both sides of the question. Would you like to see the evidence that Trump obstructed justice? I, I think I would. Uh, <laughs> oh. uh, I, I, that would be that would be of interest to me and, and, and at least half a dozen other people. <laughs> we would we would like the Judiciary Committee of the House to see the evidence that Trump that obstructed. They would be justice. among that those six other people. I would <laughs> I would imagine yes. So the. Um, yeah, I have to agree with you that at least in ordinary language ter- terms, the way most people understand obstruction of justice, firing the director of the FBI because he was investigating your crimes and forcing the resignation of the attorney general because he was not protecting you from a criminal investigation, I think in the, most people would would call this an effort to obstruct justice. It isn't uh, – maybe there's some different legal definition, but – I, th- yeah, I was going to say for us laypersons, that, that sounds like an open and closed case. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's just because we're laypersons. But, you know, there are a lot of laypersons in America the last time I looked. And, it, it, you know, I think that the, that affects the, uh, the, the polling, the poll data that you, you cited a little yeah. earlier. Us laypersons are, are, are kind of perplexed at the, uh, the lack of uh, something more decisive coming out of the Mueller report. Uh, so we are told Mueller concluded he didn't find enough evidence to charge Trump with conspiring with Russia in the election. Is there anything else that Trump did that might have been against the law other than Russiagate? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there are a lot of things he did that uh, I, I think run against sort of the basic tenets of uh, of American democracy, um, uh, I mean, obstruction is, is is indeed a violation of the law. Uh, doing things like uh, locking up little kids, taking them away from their parents at the border. Um, I mean, I admit you don't have to do collusion on that. You don't have to be inspired by the Gulag, for instance, uh, to, uh, <laughs> to do that. Uh, that that's homegrown uh, uh, savagery. Uh, and I think there's a lot of homegrown savagery on Trump's part. And then, of course, you know, it is all kinds of questions about his taxes and, and whatnot that, again, uh, if, if we were ever to get uh, some hard information, might indeed be uh, overtly criminal. Meanwhile, uh, uh, you don't have to be overtly criminal to be the worst president in the history of the United States, and I think he's really kind of exceeding at that. Excellent point. You don't have to be convicted of a crime to be the worst president in the history of the United States. We're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Well, the pundits, some of the pundits are telling us now that the Democrats, as a result of the Mueller report, will not be able to run in 2020 on collusion. They'll have to emphasize some other issues instead. But but I thought the Democratic candidates already are emphasizing other issues and that the reason they did so well in 2018 was that they talked about Medicare for all and a $15 minimum wage and free college tuition. And some talked about a Green New Deal. Did I miss collusion as a Democratic campaign issue? The short answer to that is no, you did not. Uh, Democrats ran on uh, all of those issues that you just said, and in particular on uh, Protecting uh, the Obamacare health care guarantees, like uh, pre-existing conditions, and, and uh, uh, that Trump has gone into that again, as I said, is, 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 is utterly bizarre. So the whole notion that the Democrats have been derailed uh, for running against collusion in 2020 
suggests that the people who have written that paid no attention to the 2018 campaign at all, because that's not what they ran on in 2018 when they uh, took 40 uh, House seats away from the Republicans. So uh, you said that you weren't too, you weren't completely optimistic about the Democrats' chances uh, of defeating Trump. Why is that? Well, look, the, the, we know the Democrats' history of of, of snatching uh, a defeat from the jaws of victory. We know that the Electoral College presents uh, real possibilities of uh, uh, Republican victory, even though they lose the popular vote, which has happened twice uh since uh, since 2000 uh you know there's the, 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 there's a host of factors and uh uh the, the the system itself the electoral college system is 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 not one that necessarily rewards uh the electoral uh, popular vote majority so you know i mean there's that that and you know the democrats can do something really dumb that's uh, not not unheard of for that to happen uh, and the economy at the moment is fairly strong, but the latest data out just today on the fourth quarter of 2018 shows that it's weakening a little. So uh, that would uh, certainly not help Trump if it continues to weaken. It's, uh, but, well, many things are up in the air. The, most, the thing that's most up in the air is who the Democrats will uh, nominate uh, as their candidate for president, since there are uh, several gazillion people running, and it's really not clear which of them will emerge. Uh, you posted just this afternoon at the American Prospect Today TAP uh, <clears throat> website uh, an argument, response to an argument that the Democrats have to be careful not to be too left wing, and that the <clears throat> enthusiasm of people like you and me for AOC could lead to disaster. Uh, what's the story here? Well, I was particularly responding to the decision of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, uh, that said that uh, they would blacklist any political uh, consultants or others who work for uh, prim primary challengers to Democratic House members. Uh, I mean, I recall that no such uh, uh, ban was placed on uh, people who worked for Gene McCarthy or Bobby Kennedy in 1968 or Ted Kennedy in 1980, who challenged incumbent Democratic presidents, uh, which you would think would be a bigger deal. And given, you know, given the ferment in the Democratic base, given that the share of Democrats who describe themselves as liberal is twice that of the, the share in the 1990s, uh, given that there's this whole new generation for which uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has become sort of the uh, emblematic person uh, that, that's surging into politics and that with a more progressive politics, uh, this, this seems an attempt to just sort of freeze the ideological composition of the Democratic House delegation uh, as, as to what it is right now, which, which is crazy. And then the whole contention that because the Democrats picked up a lot of suburban districts that are relatively moderate, that you know they they, they you know that you, you you don't want to offend them you don't want to go too far left well obviously you don't want to go too far left that depends on what your definition of too far <laughs> is but the but there's a real risk in not responding to the ideological shift uh that has taken you know most of the democratic party uh, as as a whole and the rise of a whole new left-wing millennial generation entering into politics there's a risk in blowing that off uh, that's at least as real, if not more real, than the risk of going, quote, too far left. So it's, it's, it's not as if the Democrats have to be wedded to Clinton-Obama uh, policies of the past.
Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. And always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Coming up, more coverage of today's news and yesterday's news when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at Trump Watch Podcast. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali Kolhatkar. But first, how the movement has changed over the last 50 years. For that, we turn to Dick and Mickey Flax, longtime activists who've been based in Santa Barbara since 1969. Mickey is a retired researcher in biology and an author. Dick is an emeritus professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara, an author of many books on the American left. He's also a radio person. He hosted Culture of Protest on KCSB for several decades. The show features music and commentary on social struggle, past and present, local and global. Their new book is titled Making History, Making Blintzes. How Two Red Diaper Babies Found Each Other and Discovered America. Dick and Mickey Flax, welcome to the program. Hi there, John. Thanks. Well, I want to start out a little bit with some personal questions. What, what for each of you, have been the most rewarding and happiest moments of your life on the left? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, I, maybe I'd answer it in its sort of obvious in moments of uh, collective action where people seem to feel and act in an empowered way, uh, you know, uh, those kinds of, um, uh, you know, whether it's the Women's March uh, after the inauguration uh, in, in 2017, uh, for, to give a recent example, or being part of uh, uh, student uprisings on campuses back in the 60s, uh, those, of course, you know, they're very empowering movements that feel like the world is changing. So that would be one answer I'd give. But I think Mickey might have other ideas. Well, yeah, I, I just found, even though I was not a student and always kept my distance from SDS, Students for Democratic Society, because I was not a student, uh, I found that the um, the founding convention at Port Huron, uh, when that ended, um it, it was just an incredible experience. I've never had anything like that before or since. Being with brilliant people who were committed to changing the world in ways that I had really never seen before. And one of those people was Tom Hayden, who you okay. worked with quite a bit uh, for many decades. That's correct, yes. He remained a friend and co-worker and comrade for um, many decades, yes. Well, yeah, the um, <clears throat> the two of you have spent really a lifetime on the left. We'd like to know what made each of you leftists and activists in the first place. How do you explain it? Well, I think that's part of the story we're telling in the book, because the book really begins with our mothers 
uh, both of whom were communists uh, in different ways. My mother, uh, after growing up in a very orthodox Jewish religious home, became a school teacher in the early 30s in New York, became active in the teachers' union, which was a left-wing union. My father, uh, they, they both were very active in that union. She became a uh, a community leader in the uh, African-American ghetto neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant where she taught. Anyway, that's what I was raised with, to feel that it was uh, just a natural part of one's life and responsibility to try to make the world a bit better uh, and to uh, uh, stand for certain kinds of uh, democratic principles. Uh, it was. Uh, it's not. There's no mystery about how I became a left activist. I think Mickey would have a. Her mother was a different kind of Bolshevik. One of. Yeah. Well, that's. Uh, yes, my mother was uh, an immigrant. She came here in uh, 1922. She was 17 years old, um, and she came as a Bolshevik from the Soviet Union. Um, always wanting to go back, and uh, that was kind of the story of her life, of being displaced against her will um, uh, by her family. But um, she, uh, she, she, as a Bolshevik, she became a communist in the United States and spent a lifetime uh, working in various trade union movements, in political movements, in accepting responsibility. This, this is how I look at the left and, and communists in particular, accepting responsibility for changing or dealing with your part of the world, which is more than just your family, that is people who, who surround you and the society you live in. So we uh, uh, use that term red diaper baby to characterize this background. I think we both were a little luckier than some of the red diaper babies that uh, were younger than we, because we actually experienced the left in New York as a very vibrant force uh, before the 1950s. In the Red Scare period, uh, we were already uh, old enough to have remembered uh, this past, a more, a more, um, a more integrated past, not one of just. Uh, alienation and, and repression, which is what the McCarthy period was like, but we, but we also described that period and how, to, how we lived through it um, before we met. Then we met at uh, left-wing children's camp, Camp Kinderlin in, in New York, and we've been together for more than 60 years ever since. Um, so so it, it's, not, again, no mystery that we... Uh, became what we were, but there was this period between uh, the demise of uh, of the Communist Party and the revelations of Stalin's crimes by Khrushchev in that period where we both uh, probably disaffiliated to some degree from, uh, there weren't, didn't seem to be an active politics for us, but then the rise of the new left was what we were looking for by the early 60s, something that was free of the, um, really, the crimes and failures of the old left as we had grown up with it, and uh, something that was going to start fresh with a new language and a, and a much more, uh, you know, relevant perspective for, for American life. And we really tried to contribute to making that happen. And you, uh, 
the two of you moved to California and Santa Barbara in 1969 from Chicago, a big uh, culture culture shock, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> but of course, California in 1969 was not California of 2019. Let's talk briefly about how you have seen California politics change since you first arrived. Well, probably the main change that we have seen has been political, uh, with a capital P. Uh, when we came, we described the town as being run by white-shoed um, lawyers and uh, real estate agents and folks like that. They were elected to all of the city positions and the state positions, and now it's exactly the opposite. That is, uh, every uh, member uh, of the government in any way, from southern Santa Barbara County at least, is a is a quite a liberal Democrat, and, um, and and that's partly or mainly. Well, it's hard to say, but I think the university's growth and students remaining here, choosing to remain here after graduation, has had a profound effect. There's been a demographic change. Uh, in this town, and it's uh, it's had its effects. Yeah, and the rise of the Latino community as well. But uh, another way of talking about that change, John, is uh, when I was hired, Governor Reagan then uh, tried to stop my appointment. Uh, it was a big debate at the Board of Regents about whether I should be get, it's a tenured position that I took here at Santa Barbara. Uh, but I survived that, but we felt very embattled. I don't just mean Mickey and me, but the sociology department and, and the more progressive faculty uh, at UCSB embattled during those Reagan years. Um, so we lived in a Republican town with with a uh, uh, state government that was very hostile to uh, what we stood for. Um, California is like totally different from from that era in ways that we were working for, uh, you know, beginning with our time here. Uh, and, uh, you know, in a way, Santa Barbara shifting, another factor being the, the, the great oil spill of 1969 and the way in which that really uh, transformed consciousness here about uh, corporate power and about the, you know, environmental questions. Uh, uh we this this area pioneered what happened throughout Southern California. That is the shift, if you want, to the left. Uh, that that is now how people think of California and Southern California. Although even when we came, um, there's a country song uh, called "There's No Place Like California." There is no California. Is the name of the song. Hmm. And uh, so even back then, when we came, California was this semi-mythical place yeah. where everything was different and exciting and new, and a lot of that was true. Hmm. Yeah, that's certainly the case of the California in the 60s. It was uh, the Mecca, and, and people, a lot of people are nostalgic for that time. Uh, I don't think we feel that much nostalgia, but 
anyway, that it was a kind of dreamland. Um, well, it was a dreamland that had Reagan as governor and that had right. given rise to Nixon and where there was a yes. state version of HUAC that was pretty strong. Today, California yes. is completely the opposite. Of course, there's no right. Republicans in statewide office. The Republicans right. are out of power even in Orange County, which was their base. But in the national government... Uh, instead of Kennedy or Johnson, of course, we have a very different president. Uh, how do you explain, can you explain, I'm sure you've tried to understand, the rise of Trump and why, uh, why, in particular, white working class people would vote for Trump? Well, I, I mean, yeah, I've devoted some uh, you know, sociological uh, uh, training to, to trying to think about this, but and I don't want to give a big lecture about it, but it seems to me on the one hand we have to realize that uh, this there's been a politics of backlash since uh George Wallace at least uh, yeah. was rousing uh opposition to the civil rights movement uh and and liberalism back back in the 60s Nixon certainly got elected on the basis of that kind of uh, uh strategy uh very much so very consciously so um and uh, I think we have in the Republican party uh, what has become what I like to call almost a, a confederation of rackets. There's the hmm. anti-immigrant racket. There's the evangelical racket, in a way. Voters being, uh, with those kind of inclinations, uh, being uh, appealed to uh, uh, by these political entrepreneurs. And the reason I can feel it as a racket is because Trump almost makes that clear that it's it's not a serious governing effort it's it's an effort to hold back various kinds of tides that certain significant part of the population feels threatened by i think uh when in talking about white working class if there is such single entity uh, uh that that shift was you know that we used to talk about reagan democrats that was the same kind of population that uh, and it has to do with partly race, to a very great extent, race, American worker, working class uh, political action has been built around ethnicity and race for, for you know, for generations. Uh, and uh, the more the Democrats try to claim to be the party uh, uh, that crossed those ethnic boundaries, once it was very ethnically constituted, um, the Republicans, cleverly, some of them have picked up on that. So in some ways, this Trump election is nothing uh, brand new. Uh, by the way, I think the evangelical base is very important to Trump. He's no, it's amazing because he doesn't represent morally what the evangelicals claim to represent, but politically he's their dream because he will do whatever they want uh, in terms of court appointments and all the rest of it. Uh, I mean, I think the, the what makes Trump, the Trump years, are. I, we hope this is true, what I say, I could eat these words <laughs> if I'm still mm -hmm. alive a few years from now. But I, I'm hoping that what the Trump era proves is the emptiness of this Republican game that they've been playing for all these years uh, about promising to people various kinds of benefit from the political system, but all of it is purely symbolic to, to a very great extent. I mean, when you're talking about working class 
uh, and, and middle-class people. Of course, it's a tremendous benefit to the very rich. Uh, and uh, uh, and so that, but that's a minority coalition, and it's a dying coalition. That's, uh, I think that demographics again has a major role to play, uh-huh. um, and that combined with the electoral college, in the sense that has been. It used to say that the continent should uh, lean to the left, and all the loose nuts went to California. <laughs> well, now I think that the continent rose sort of along the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> A lot of people who think the same moved either to the left of, of the map or to the right of the map, um, leaving the great middle of the country to cast its electoral votes in a different way. I mean, the division in the country has never been that profound, except perhaps for the difference between the Jim Crow South and everything else. Excellent point. Even more, so. so, you know, Mickey and I, uh, I think part of what sustained us all these years politically is to look for the hopeful signs. Uh, it's, not about, it's not really optimism. It's trying to see where, where are the seeds of possibility. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're not alone in feeling tremendous uh, uh, how intriguing and fascinating and, and potentially exciting all the political engagement uh, and resistance to the Trump administration has been happening uh, with with uh, results very exciting among those elected to Congress, but not only the young people in Congress, but uh, I think we're seeing it right locally that a lot of uh, uh, people, the activists young today are much more electorally savvy and engaged uh, rationally engaged electorally, as well as in uh, direct action, compared to the '60s generation, which had very little use for for the electoral process uh, for 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 reasons that were that were valid. But uh, this this generation of of um, more left left oriented young people seems to really see the need for multi pronged activity and for uh, reaching out across boundaries rather than staying in uh, their own particular sectoral niches and, and sectarian niches, if you will. We've, that's at least my hope, our hope. We've only that's, that's we've, how, that's, yeah. Go ahead. We've only got about a minute left here, and I okay. I just wanted to ask about your title, "Making History, Making Blintzes." You see, blintzes as a symbol of what? A symbol for us. We don't claim it as a, as a universal symbol, but a symbol for us of secular Jewish socialist uh, movement and thought and history. As well as for everyday life. That's yeah. part of the theme of the book is how, to, how do you be politically engaged and also have a life that connects you with, with the uh, needs of, uh, of other people and with the everyday concerns of, of, of people. Uh, rather than uh, be walled off from that, that's sort of the, the, the theme, one of the underlying themes, as well as this, the uses of the Jewish traditions uh, uh, for sustaining uh, moral commitment and so forth. By the way, John, I, I, I told you I was going to wish you happy uh, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, 50th anniversary of their bed-in and of Give Peace a Chance. 
um, since you're such a John Lennon. Maven. Well, thank thank you very much. Yes, at the end of our of our uh, program today, we're going to return to that theme. Mickey Flax and Dick Flax. Their book is Making History, Making Blinces: How Two Red Diaper Babies Found Each Other and Discovered America. Mickey and Dick, thanks so much for talking with us today on KPFK. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Uh, Next up, a special archives feature that's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Uh, We had promised a a segment on plastics and climate change with Zoe Carpenter, but she's had a flat tire, and we will do that segment next week. Instead, we'll now go to our show archives for one of our favorite uh, episodes. Jane Mayer talks about Mike Pence and his mother. Would Pence be worse? Donald Trump is narcissistic, ignorant, impulsive, and aggressive. Maybe he'll be forced out of office before the end of his term, but would that be a good thing? Would Pence be worse? Jane Mayer has been working on that question. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker, author of several award-winning and best-selling books. Her latest, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by The New York Times. It's out now in paperback and back on the bestseller list in Los Angeles. The last time she was here, we talked about the secret power behind the Trump presidency, the reclusive and very right-wing hedge fund billionaire Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca. Jane Mayer, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, my first question is, do you think that Mike Pence wants to be president? Oh, I, I think there's um, there's no doubt. In fact, I interviewed so many people for this story, I think something like 60-some 60, 60 people, and including um, the editor of the newspaper in his hometown, who said to me, Mike Pence popped out of his mother's womb wanting to be president. Uh, (laughs) By the time he was in high school, he was telling his um, classmates that he wanted to be president of the United States. This is is one of the revelations to me that I I just didn't expect. I knew he was, you know, very much a social conservative and a, a member of the Christian right, but he's also hugely ambitious. But yet he's never been really successful as a candidate or as an elected official. He, he lost his first elections. He barely won the governor's race, got only 49 percent of the vote. And you say uh, his tenure as governor nearly destroyed his political career. I remember that when Trump picked him, it looked like he might lose his reelection campaign for governor. So how do you explain his relatively weak performance as a candidate and as governor? Part of the problem is his views really are so extreme that he has, as, as one of the Republicans that I quote in the story, a guy named Bill Osterley said, he scared a lot of people, even in Indiana, That which is partly why he only got 49% of the vote when he ran for governor. I mean, to, to, to balance that out, though, he did, he did serve a number of terms in Congress, of course, and he kept getting reelected. And he, meanwhile, was rising in the leadership of the Republican Party in Congress. So... 
so he has some skills, and I wouldn't underestimate those. In particular, he has a, a great gift for making extreme positions seem less threatening. It's kind of the same gift that, that Ronald Reagan had, and to some extent, Dick Cheney had. The, the, he knows how to explain things in a way that makes him seem affable and likable, and you, you don't really grasp the, the sort of the threat that's um, in, in some of the policy positions he's taking. Well, among the 60 people you interviewed for your story in The New Yorker to understand Mike Pence, you talked to his mother. What is she like? <laughs> his mom's name is Nancy um, uh, Pence Fritch. She's gotten re- remarried um, She uh, after her uh, Mr. Pence died. Um, she was actually quite delightful, and I would say to the extent that Mike Pence has any charm, it probably comes from his mom. She's a um, staunch Irish Catholic lady who was originally from Chicago, um, very proud of her roots, and um, moved to Indiana because of her husband's job. And uh, she had a sense of humor. She was pretty, you know, very proud of her, all of her sons. She's got six kids. It was her other son, though, her first son, um, Gregory, who um, actually was uh, taking a lot of sort of ribbing her and and ribbing his brother and, and kind of taking a few sort of sibling-like shots at Mike Pence while I was interviewing him, too. In your New Yorker piece, you quote Mike Pence's mother telling you, I was a Stepford wife. What is she talking about? <laughs> Well, I was asking her um, over coffee in uh, Columbus, Indiana, where they're all from, you know, how did she become a Republican? Because she'd originally been a a, a big Democrat, a fan of the Daily Machine in in Chicago and and of the Kennedys. And she said, well, my husband became Republican, and I guess I just sort of followed what he wanted. And she said, I was a Stepford wife. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) she, she actually went back to college when she was 65 and got a degree in psychology and that she sort of said that's when she started thinking for herself and her her son Gregory who is uh, Mike Pence's brother said yeah she was like the scarecrow she you know that's when she got her brain and then the mom looked at me and she said you see what I have to put up with so I mean they were they were you know they were kind of lively nice people funny uh, affable and um, self-deprecating and warm. It's the father in the family, though, who I think casted sort of a big shadow. And um, he was actually German, not Irish, and a staunch disciplinarian. And he um, had a rule in the household, which was that the Pence children, there were six of them, were not allowed to speak at the dinner table. They had to sit there in silence while their parents spoke. Wait a minute, and, wait a minute. Um, the children were not allowed to speak at the dinner table? They were not. They were forbidden from speaking except to say a few things like, pass the butter, please, and then thank you. Anyway, he was... uh, Greg Pence said to me that their father was very black and white. Um, he, He enforced discipline with a belt... And you always knew where you stood with him, the brother said. And he said, then he said to me, and and my brother, meaning Mike Pence, is a lot like him. Well, one of the things we know about Mike Pence is that he's uh, intensely religious, evangelical, Protestant. His mother told you, quote, religion is the most important thing in our lives. What else did she say? 
But she said, you know, we don't, we're, we don't take it that seriously and we don't proselytize. But you see, the thing is, Mike Pence broke with the family's religion. Um, they, all the kids, the, all the boys in the family, their four sons and two daughters, and the, all four sons were altar boys, and they were very, very involved in, you know, parochial school and all of that. But, but, but when Mike Pence went off to college, to Hanover College in, in Indiana, he changed his religion. He, con- he, he became born again and converted to evangelical Christianity. And, and it interested me because he's someone who has, if you look at his pattern, very much kind of flowed, been caught up in, in the larger political currents. And the current at that point was moral, the moral majority was proselytizing across the country and trying to convert, among others, Catholics to become evangelical Christians, Protestants. And, and he, he got caught up in that, and he changed the religion, which is, you know, quite a surprise in his family. And, and they're dealing with it, but it, it, it's, a, it's an important rupture. You said his family were Democrats. I was amazed to learn from your article in The New Yorker that Mike Pence voted for Jimmy Carter in 1980, not for Ronald Reagan. What's the story there? Well, again, don't forget, Jimmy Carter was a born-again Christian. So he, uh, there were a lot of evangelicals who, who voted for him, um, including ones that would become increasingly conservative afterwards and become more Republican, and that's what happened with Mike Pence. He, he fell in love with Reagan after, <laughs> after voting for Jimmy Carter, um, and Reagan became kind of his, his role model. So again, in fact, I, I didn't put it in the story, but I have read that Mike Pence likes to listen to, on you know, to to tapes of Reagan's speeches and and jokes. I've heard him tell some of Reagan's jokes. I think he's he's again tried to capture that sort of affable conservative style that 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 won't be as off-putting to people. But um, beneath that style is about as hardcore a right-wing social conservative as you can find in this country. And what's the deal with his refusing to eat dinner alone with another woman? Does he really think other women will lure him into adultery? <laughs> well, you know, there is it's it's this code in the um evangelical right um and the idea is that you you need to keep yourself out of temptation. So he will not eat dinner with a woman other than his wife alone, and he also will not go to a cocktail party or any place where they're serving alcohol in mixed company when she is not present. I mean, in some ways, I felt that his wife, Karen Pence, who he calls mother, she acts almost like a chaperone in his life. And you kind of have to wonder, you know, why is it he feels he needs such chaperoning? Yeah. Well, you need to keep yourself out of temptation, he he believes, and yet he supported Donald Trump after the Excess Hollywood tape came out where, uh, let us say, Trump uh, does not try to keep himself out of temptation. Well, this is where you see the other side of Pence. So people think of him as an uncompromising Christian conservative, but in fact, he has he's cut his his necessary deals when he needs to in order to get ahead. And and getting on the on the uh, ticket with with Trump was certainly uh, the largest example that he was willing to sort of strike a, a, a Faustian bargain when he needed to. And it rescued him. I mean, it must be said, uh, many people I interviewed thought that Mike Pence would never have gotten reelected as governor of Indiana. He was incredibly unpopular. There were st- signs popping up all over the state saying, fire Mike Pence. And, and so 
it was really actually a you know a rescue operation when Trump put him on the ticket because there are very strong odds for vice presidents becoming president. It put him in in line to be potentially a president of the United States in a way he never would have had the chance otherwise. One of your sources, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, you quote saying, if Pence were to become president, the government would be run by the Koch brothers. Uh, You, of course, uh, have written the book on the Koch brothers, and you report that in 2012, one of the Koch brothers, Charles Koch, wanted Pence to run for president. How did Mike Pence, the the far-right Christian evangelical conservative, become a favorite of the Kochs? Well, it's a curious story because, and one that I actually didn't know till I got uh, deeply into the reporting on Pence. But as you, you know, your question sort of suggests that the the Cokes are not religious. They don't care about um, sort of social conservatism. They call themselves libertarians. So they they certainly are not aligned with Pence on these moral issues having to do with his hatred of abortion and and you know th- those kinds of issues. So what do they have in common? Well, it turns out in 2009, Mike Pence started doing some major economic favors for the Kochs. Uh, They were tremendously powerful, but they were really worried that um, some legislation was going to pass through Congress that was going to end up taxing carbon pollution. They're a huge fossil fuel company, and it would have hurt their bottom line tremendously. And Mike Pence took up their cause, and he he campaigned and pushed and wheedled and he, he took a, a, a petition that the, that the Koch organization had created and got tons of his colleagues in the House to sign on to it saying that they would pass no legislation to stop global warming that would require spending a, a cent of government money. And, and what happened as a result of his activism and that of a few other people in the, in the uh, leadership on the Republican side in the House was that they, they he succeeded in killing the legislation, which would have resulted in a tax on carbon pollution, helping Coke Industries hugely, and and from there on out, aligning the Republican Party against doing anything about climate change, unlike almost any other political organization in the world. Um, and so it was a, a hugely valuable thing that he did for Coke Industries, and Coke Industries has rewarded him ever since, and he became you know one of their favorite politicians if not their favorite politician. So that's the, that's the origin story of, of how they became so close. And then they began to try, the Cokes were hoping to push him to run for president. So I need to return to our opening question. Would Pence be worse than Trump right now? What, what answers did people give you to that question? So I, I asked tons of people, and, 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 you know, one of the things that was interesting to me was among the people who, who were most negative about Pence were people in Indiana, including a number of Republicans. Even moderate Republicans were, were found Pence just so far right that they, that they thought, and, and, and also kind of incompetent, that they, they were just warning me against him. And there's one um, Republican state legislator I quote named Ed Clay from Indiana who said to me, I would take Trump 
any day of the week and twice on Sundays over Pence, which is kind of shocking. Yeah. And 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 a number, you know, and a number of the others did too. And then <laughs> there's some Democrats who, for different reasons, kind of said the same thing. I quote Harold Ickes in the story. Um, who's a big Democratic operative and has been for a number of years. And, and, and Icky said to me, Democrats should pray that Trump stays in office because he feared that if Pence came in, it would be a much harder foil for the Democrats to run against. Pence, Pence is likely to be, it would be able to work with Congress if he were president because he's been in Congress, maybe even get something done, might be a little bit more competent than, than Trump, you know, and, and certainly in this in social conservative legislation sphere, he poses a, a, a different and bigger threat. But it all comes down to, I think, how great a threat you think Trump might be in terms of starting a nuclear war. And that is everybody's caveat. You know, if, if, if you think Trump might start a nuclear war, what could be worse? Pretty much nothing. But beyond that, I, I can't say that I heard a lot of votes for Pence. Jane Mayer, she interviewed 60 people for her piece for The New Yorker. It's called The Danger of President Pence. It's required reading for everybody interested in politics. Jane, thanks so much for this piece, and thanks for talking with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. One last thing. It's the 50th anniversary this week of John and Yoko's Bed In for Peace at the Amsterdam Hilton. It was their honeymoon after they got married at Gibraltar in Spain. Lennon said the bed-in was, quote, our protest against all the suffering and violence in the world. There are many ways to protest. It's been celebrated in song after they finished. The newspaper said, say what you're doing in bed. I said, we're only trying to get us some peace. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect, talked about Trump and the Mueller report. We also spoke with Dick and Mickey Flax. Their book is Making History, Making Blintzes, How Two Red Diaper Babies Found Each Other and Discovered America. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, and our producer, Renee Reynolds, coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Rush returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>